Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Barb, and today's reading from Scripture is from the book of Mark, uh, chapter 13, verses 24 through 37. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in, in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and you find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Barb. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, so good to be with you. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege and honor to be able to open up the Word of God with you and for you this evening. So if you're not already there, would you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13? Mark chapter 13. Well, today we come to the last portion of Mark chapter 13. If you remember, if you can remember this far back, we actually began this six weeks ago. It's taken us six weeks to get through this text, not because we did six sermons uh, on this text, but because we had a whole host of um, different events that we weren't quite expecting, and so here we find ourselves at the end of this text. Um, And unfortunately for you, this is one of those texts that kind of builds one piece on the other. So you may have to do a little bit of reading back at the beginning of the chapter to remember the things that we've talked about and all of those sorts of things, but we'll get through this together tonight. So... It is, um, it, it's good to be with you, and it's good to remember, if you want to just a brief refresher of kind of where we've been, as we came into Mark chapter 13, the disciples had made a comment to Jesus. It's an unusual comment, at least to our ears as we read that text, but as they're walking towards the temple in Jerusalem, the disciples stop Jesus just to draw his attention to the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of the temple. And Jesus takes this opportunity to begin to teach and to prophesy and to teach and to train his disciples. And specifically, what he begins to talk about is the fact that the the temple itself was going to be destroyed. In and of itself, that was an unfathomable reality for these disciples. The temple was the center place of Jewish worship. It It was the centerpiece of Jewish life. It was the place that God had promised them. It was the place where they went to worship and to meet with God. But Jesus prophesies that this very same temple that they valued so much was going to be destroyed. And then he begins to prophesy further that his people, his followers, these very disciples, 
followed by hundreds and thousands of years worth of believers, we're going to face all kinds of trials and tribulations and difficulty, and that all of that was going to be encapsulated with his return. And the benefit of working through an odd text like this, and it is a strange text, when we ever come across prophecy, it's written in a style and in a manner that is very different than everything else we read. But the value about reading a passage like this, and part of the reason that we work our way through books of the Bible, is that it forces us to think about our eschatology. And eschatology just simply means the branch of theology that concerns itself with the end things, the last things the end of the world, the consummation of all creation. And texts like this have a tendency to be a Rorschach test for us. Have you ever seen one of those? A psychiatrist holds up an ink blot and asks you what it is that you see in that blot and you give an answer and somehow or another magically he has an insight into your brain and the inner workings and machinations of your mind, right? And in some sense or another, that's what these texts have a tendency to do for us. They reveal our presumptions. Our tendency is to come into a text like this with all sorts of preconceived notions and then to lay our notions on top of the text itself. We're trying to make sense of it. We're trying to make the whole of Scripture fit together. And so for some people, they approach a text like this like a totem. They're going to hang their individual convictions of theology on this text and try to force it to work. They're going to do all sorts of mental gymnastics to make it fit their own personal theological perspective. And other people on the whole other end of the spectrum come to a text like this cynically. Maybe they find Christianity valuable for some reason or another for the sense of morality or justice that it can bring, for the sense of cultural good or benefit that they can bring. But when they come to a text like this that was written 2,000 years ago that says that these very disciples found themselves in the last days and that Jesus Christ himself is going to physically, literally return... They sit now 2,000 years removed from that prophecy and wonder, well, where is he? And people in that perspective are either led to a sense of despair. Is Jesus' promise actually going to come true? Is his prophecy actually real? Is there actually truth in this? Or they begin to twist Christianity to fit their own personal narrative. They buy into a liberal perspective of Scripture that says that ultimately Christianity is purely about social justice or cultural change. And again, the limitations of our mind and our perspective make texts like this difficult. But I came across a quote from the English theologian Charles Cranfield. I'm going to read it for you. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's so valuable, and I want you to hear it. Cranfield says, If we realize that the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection and ascension on the one hand and the second coming on the other belong essentially together and are in a real sense one event, one divine act being held apart only by the mercy of God who desires to give men opportunity for faith and repentance. Then we can see that in a very real sense the latter, that is the second coming, is always imminent now that the former, the incarnation, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension have happened, it was and still is true to say that the second coming is at hand, and indeed this, so far from being an embarrassing mistake on the part either of Jesus or the early church, is an essential part of the Christian faith. Ever since the incarnation, 
men have been living in the last days. In other words, the gap that exists between Christ's ascension and his pending return is not a mistake of timing, nor is it evidence of error on the Lord's part. Rather, every moment that the Lord waits is a sign of his patience, a declaration of his grace toward humanity, a symbol of mercy for those who have yet to believe. And thankfully so for all of us gathered here tonight. So the question remains, then how, how do we actually think about the end of the world? When we think about the consummation of things, when we think about the last days and the, the last times, how are Christians supposed to think about these events? I came across an apocryphal story. Some of you have probably heard it. It was told about Martin Luther, and, and, and in this story, somebody came up to Martin Luther as he was toiling in the field and asked him what it was he was going to do if he knew that the world was going to end tomorrow. Coming to Luther saying, if this was your last day on earth, if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? And Luther worked up, looked up from his work in the field and said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Now, whether or not that story is true, it illustrates an important point, which is this. For the Christian, even the most menial task is of divine importance. See, we have a tendency to divide things in our mind between the sacred and the secular. Our sacred is all of the things that we do for the Lord. So we go to church and we read our Bibles and we pray and we talk to people about salvation that can only be found in Him and we sing songs of worship and we train up our children in the ways of the Lord. Those are all of the things that we do explicitly to draw glory and attention and praise and worship to God Himself. That's the sacred in our mind. And likewise, we, I think, erringly, then think about the rest of our life, the secular. I go to my job and I pay my taxes and I interact with my family and I watch a ball game and I do all of these things and that's very separate, very distinct from who I am as a Christian. I've divided my life into these categories, but do you realize that for the Christian, everything is sacred, everything. That if all of our lives is actually an offering to God, if giving God our life is, is, is in fact our reasonable service, then everything we do is of significance eternally. So is there anything less holy about a man who goes to his job to work as God instructed him and to provide for his needs and the needs of his family? Of course not. Is there anything less holy about a student who goes to school and sits in class to learn math and grammar? Of course not. Is there anything less holy about a mother who sits down with her family at dinner to discuss the goings-on of her day? No, to faithfully fulfill the tasks that God has given each of us is of divine and eternal significance. So when it comes to thinking about the last days and the end times, we are to live in absolute confidence of the coming of Jesus Christ while understanding that the daily responsibilities with which we have been entrusted are not in any sense dependent upon the manner or timing of his return. In other words, your call day to day as a believer does not change if Jesus Christ comes back tomorrow. The call is the very same as it would be if he comes back. 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 years from now. So if the purpose of these texts 
is not to be a jigsaw puzzle by which we can piece together where we are in the process of the end times, how ought we view it? And I would suggest to you that when we approach prophetic texts, it's our hope to, as the saying goes, make the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. In other words, where the Bible is explicit, we want to be explicit. Where the Bible is dogmatic, we want to be dogmatic. And where the Bible leaves room for interpretation and disagreement, we must extend grace to one another. So we believe, and hear this if you hear nothing else, we believe unapologetically and with certainty that Jesus Christ will literally, physically return one day. That he will come to destroy sin and to destroy Satan and to bring judgment on those who oppose God. That he will set right what is broken. That he will bring his kingdom into full realization where it is now realized in part. And that he will usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And for us as Christians, that is a closed-handed issue. That is not an issue that is up for debate. If you are a Christian, necessarily you must believe that. But understand as well that there are godly brothers and sisters who can and do hold different defensible positions about the manner and conditions of Christ's return. And it is incumbent upon us to be gracious and charitable in our conversations with one another. So with all of that as the backdrop, let's look if we we could at verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation... So the question here is, when is all of this going to happen, Jesus? And the answer is, after that tribulation, sometime after the things that he has just talked about in verses 14 through 23, the destruction of the, the temple, the abomination of desolation, all those things. So it says this, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now it's worth noting here that Jesus' description of his return is one that, one that a lot of people struggle with. I mean, we love the description of Jesus' first coming to earth, don't we? Like whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in any of this or not, there's There's something that everybody is naturally drawn to when you imagine this young, poor family gathered around a glowing manger with smiling animals and people placed all around them watching that scene. We love everything about the nativity. We love the simplicity of it. And even if you're not a believer, as you think about that story, there's something that resonates with the human heart, with the fact that God himself came as this innocent baby, that he was born into a poor family. We love that picture. But the second coming is a totally different look. The description that we're given here is that when Jesus comes, the natural order itself is unraveling. That what we assume about science and physics and the universe, the very laws of nature themselves seem to be bent and broken in his return. And there's debate in this passage as to whether or not Jesus is speaking literally or figuratively, and we can have that debate another time, but here's what I would say. Either way, this is an extraordinary picture. Because he says the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
So recently I heard a description of somebody who was caught in a building in California during a massive earthquake and as they were describing the scenario around them, they'd never been in an earthquake, they weren't native to California and as they were describing what it was like to be in that place, they said it was so disorienting and strange because you'd look at the floor and it looked like the floor was moving one direction and you looked at the ceiling and it was moving another, another direction. Everything you thought you knew about the place and time in which you live seemed to be turned on its head in that moment. And that's exactly the picture that he's giving here. He's saying there is disorientation and, uh, on a ma- uh, of, a, of a magnitude of a cosmic scale. And in this case, it seems to be Satan and his, his forces that are experiencing this disorientation. Notice what he says. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. So some people believe that's a, a comment about the planets and the stars and the moon and all of those sorts of things. Other people, myself included, believe this is actually a reference to spiritual powers. That the stronghold and the grip that Satan has over this world is suddenly being ripped away from him. That Satan himself and his demons are shaken to their core. And into this chaotic, restless scene rides King Jesus. So John describes it this way in Revelation 19, Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's this incredible picture. This isn't Jesus the humble servant in this moment. This is Jesus the conquering king who rides in on a white horse and with the with the spoken word, destroys evil powers. With his mere presence, he ushers in God himself into the creation. He judges perfectly. All the injustice and all the brokenness of this world at once, immediately, is set right. And notice how far Mark takes this in his recording of Jesus' words. He says this is a literal physical return. Verse 26, they will see the Son of Man. Remember, that's the favorite moniker of Jesus that comes from Daniel chapter 7. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is the climax of all these prophetic events. So the question remains, since the pages of Scripture are peppered with references to the imminent return of Christ, what is the practical significance to the believer now? Are we to be preoccupied with the return of Christ? Trying to piece together the particular moment in time in which we find ourselves as compared to his return? Are we to be apathetic about the return of Christ? Knowing that it will eventually come, but it having no real practical impact on our lives, or is there a third option? And that's what the remainder of the text answers. Verse 28, from the fig trees, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, the trials, the tribulations, you know that he is near. He is at the very gates. Now we have a first-hand picture of what Jesus is talking about. Because for the last five or six months, we've had barren trees, and we've had cold weather, and we've had all the indications of winter, the cold weather, the dark nights. But right now, right now, we're experiencing that change. You can almost smell it in the air, can't you? And very soon, if it's not already happening, we're going to see the buds begin to pop on trees. We're going to see all the indications that things are changing. And Jesus says in this text, my return, the hope of restoration, the hope of renewal can only take place after the cold, dark winter is felt. The destruction of the temple, the trials and tribulations of God's people from this time until now are merely the birth pains, according to verse 8 of this text. They're an indication that something beautiful is about to occur. I've been in the room when a birth has happened three times, and I can tell you that that is a very vivid picture. All the pain, all the anticipation, all all the longing, everything that leads up to that moment, in the moment of birth, you see beauty, wonder. You're amazed at what God does. And Jesus says, in my return, you'll find the very same thing. See, right now, in the middle of growing godlessness in our own country, with a rise of cultural paganism, many people look with sentimentality at the past. Oh, if it could just be like the days before when Americans, by and large, went to church or were part of churches or at least declared they were part of a denomination. Or If we could go back to the day when the Ten Commandments were taught in schools or where there was a common sense of morality or, or if we could once again experience what it would have been like to be there at the Great Awakening under Edwards and Whitfield in which so many turned to Christ. But Jesus here is saying to the extent that we have experienced moments of light and blessing, those are just foretastes of what Jesus is bringing with him when he returns. See, the hope for the Christian is that even as the world seemingly grows darker, we know that the light is coming closer. His return has a very real and practical meaning when the people of God experience difficulty and heartache when we see darkness and hurt around us. But he doesn't end there. Verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And I think, by the way, that that is specifically a reference back to the destruction of the temple and the beginning of the suffering of God's people. Verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Do you remember, by the way, what Jesus is called in Revelation 19, that, that text that we just read, where John calls him the Word of God. He's saying it it can be that the whole world seemingly is falling apart, is disintegrating around us, but the Word of God, personified in Jesus Christ himself, does not pass. His Word is sure. His Word is his guarantee. It's his 
bond. It's his contract. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So here's what he's saying. You can know absolutely for sure, for sure, 100% guaranteed that Jesus is coming again, but we cannot know when it's going to happen. And this verse is significant for us because the historical Christian landscape is littered with failed prophecies about the return of Christ. When we think about the end of the world, and specifically things like the timing of the rapture, which is the idea that Jesus comes back to draw his church out of the world, there are all kinds of people who've made all kinds of guesses and all kinds of reckons about when Jesus was going to come back. And all of them, in case you're wondering, have already been proved wrong. So perhaps most, most famously, there was a man in the 80s named Edgar Wisenant who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Anybody recognize the title of that book? few of you. It didn't happen, by the way. So the next year, he wrote a book called The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. I assume there was an 89th reason why Jesus had to come back in 1989. But then when 1989 came and went, Edgar learned his lesson and he stopped his predictions, right? Nope. He then made separate predictions for both 1993 and 1994. He kind of took the swing hard in case you hit it approach, you know? But lest, we, lest we're tempted to pick on Edgar, names as significant as Jerry Falwell predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1999. Hal Lindsey predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1988. John Wesley predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1836. And Christians as far back as the 5th century, and that's just the recordings we have, have made predictions like this. Interests in the topic of the end of the world broadly and the timing of the return of Christ specifically have resulted in a cottage industry of conferences and TV programs and publications trying to align modern-day occurrences with biblical prophecy. And my goal, by the way, in bringing this up really isn't to mock. It's really not. But it's really to suggest that Christians need to be wise and temperate as we think about the end of the world. That we ought not try to get, try to get caught up in, in trying to obsess about things that the Bible specifically tells us we cannot predict. So some people are going to say, well, I don't know what day or hour, but I know the year or the decade. And my, my statement to you would be that you are missing the point. Because when we get caught up in trying to read the tea leaves of our day to anticipate the particularities of his coming, we tend to become preoccupied with the medium rather than the message we have missed the point. Because Jesus just declared in this text that neither he in his human form nor the angels know when that day will be. And we end up spending a lot of time trying to discern and codify what the Bible is going to describe as a mystery. So, if the purpose of the Bible's teaching is not to give us a jigsaw puzzle by which we can piece together all the details and all the meaning of veiled prophetic references. How are we to think about it? And finally, we come to our answer. Verse 33, Christian, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. 
And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So again here, Jesus points out the vanity of trying to predict the timing. He says, you do not know when he will come. But then he says this, and this is fascinating. He says, stay awake. And the implication, of course, is that our natural tendency is to fall asleep. Our natural tendency is to lose sight of the return of Christ. If he hasn't come in the last 2,000 years, what makes us think that he'll come anytime soon? Why are we to stay awake? Because the master has stepped away and left the servants in charge. Here's what he's saying. There is work to be done. There's a gospel to be proclaimed. There are precious souls who've never heard. So earlier I asked if we are to be obsessed with the return of Christ or are we to be apathetic about the return of Christ or is there a third option? And I think the third option that this text suggests is that we are to be motivated in our gospel living by the return of Christ. So here's what St. Augustine said, by the way, 1,700 years ago. He said this, he who loves the coming of the Lord by the way, do we actually love it? We're called to. He who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who affirms that it is far off, nor is it he who says it is near, but rather he who, whether it be far off or near, awaits it with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love. That we are to personally, right now, in this year, to be encouraged and uplifted and energized and made hopeful with the prospect of Jesus Christ's return. See, this this is the part where so many of us struggle, particularly in Western Christianity, we become apathetic. We become apathetic because we are incredibly comfortable here. Life is good Our lives, relatively speaking, are easy. I realize particular people may be struggling, but by and large, as a people, life is easy. We don't long for heaven because we become satisfied with earth. Why would I want that when I have all this? But when we understand what it is that Christ brings, it shakes us awake It shakes us from our stupor. It gives us a picture of something infinitely greater. It motivates us to be faithful to the work that he's given us. And what is it that he's bringing? Look at verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. From our modern perspective, we read right past that, but I want you to notice what it says there. It doesn't say that he's coming through the clouds. That's how we typically read it or think of it. No, he says he's coming in or coming with the clouds, depending on your translation. And if you remember how this would have struck a Jewish ear, what immediately would their mind have gone to? Gone to? 
They'd have thought back to the time in the wilderness when when God had told his people that he was going to lead them with his very presence. He was going to come to them as a cloud, that the very Shekinah glory of God, the visible manifestation of the eternal glory of God was going to be with the people. It comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe forever. See, when Jesus comes back, he's coming with the power and the presence of the glory of God himself. And in the light of his glory, everything changes. What was ripped apart by sinfulness, the very fabric of creation, the shalom of God, which means the interconnected peace of all of God's creation, what was ripped apart by sin is suddenly, in Jesus Christ's returned glorified presence, made right. The injustice that we see in the world is gone. Justice is meted out perfectly. The brokenness and the sadness and death that bogs down our lives is suddenly lifted. That when Jesus comes back, he sets everything right. No more tears and no more sorrows and no more sadness. And that work of setting everything right began at the cross. It goes back to what Cranfield said right at the beginning that Jesus Christ's incarnation and his perfect life, everything he did on earth, his, his death, his resurrection, his ascension is intimately connected with his return. Because when he came in the flesh, he began a work that he's going to bring to completion in his return. So James Edwards, in his notes on the commentary of the book of Mark, says this. He said, at the cross, we see a foreshadow of the second coming. And we're going to study this in depth in the weeks to come. But if you remember, if you remember the death of Jesus Christ and what happens at that cross, we're told in Mark 15 that darkness covered the whole earth for the space of three hours. And in that darkness, it was looking forward to a time when Christ would return again where the sun and the moon and the stars fall. Where the heavens shake and the earth is in chaos at the second coming, the temple veil is torn, ripped from top to bottom, and the earth quakes and rocks split when Jesus died. And as Dave mentioned a few weeks ago, Jesus experienced at the cross the absence of the presence of God the Father. In that moment, he experienced the essence of what hell is. And he experienced it infinitely. He experienced judgment day for us so that we could long for and not dread the second coming. See, the sad news for those who don't know Jesus Christ is that they will not glory at his return, but will be in terror. And that's the work that we have, the ministry that we've been given in this season. But thanks be to God, we have hope in him.
that when he returns, he comes in the cloud with the presence of God himself, and he, verse 27, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Here's what I think that text means. When he says from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, what he's saying is in this moment, Christ gathers to himself all the saints of all the ages. He draws us to himself. Do you see the promise that's in that? That the guarantee, the promise, the assurance, the hope that we have in the second coming is the fact that God himself, Jesus Christ, actually draws us to him. That Jesus experienced the absence of the Father at the cross so that he could usher in the presence of the Father in the second coming. See, the disciples heard Jesus and they probably stopped listening when they heard about the destruction of the temple. Where are we going to worship? What are we going to do? This is where God lives. And Jesus is saying, don't you see how short-sighted you are? I'm going to bring the presence of God the Father himself to you. And that is in part what what we remember when we come to the Lord's table. See, the Lord's table is representative of, of several things, but as we come to the table, we, we look back. We look back to the fact that Jesus himself had to die a cruel, tormented death on our behalf. That his flesh was torn and that he shed his blood, that he gave himself for us. And so as we partake in the wine or the juice and the the bread, we remember the blood and the body of Jesus. And it's also a focus on the here and now that we are communing together. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That there is a spiritual and actual communion that is happening, that we're being reminded that we have been unified with God. We've been given union with him and that we have a common union with one another. But the table is also a look forward. It's a look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when all of the saints of all the ages are gathered in glory in the presence of Jesus Christ. In fact, we're told that Jesus himself said, I will not again taste of the fruit of the vine, that is the wine, I will not again touch wine until that dinner. It's a promise and a guarantee of our future home and our resurrection and ascension to be with him. So what we're going to do at this time is we're going to partake in communion. I'm going to invite you just to take a few minutes to be by yourself, to be quiet, to be still with the Lord. And then after a few minutes, the music's going to start and that'll be your cue to go ahead and come forward. We'll distribute the elements here at the front. And then I'm just going to ask that you would wait to take those elements until, until we uh, can all take them together. And, and if you're here and you don't know Jesus, let me just invite you to not partake in this meal. My invitation to you instead is going to be to consider the text that we just read, the fact that there is a real Jesus Christ, that he literally came, that he died a death on our behalf, that he rose from the dead and ascended, and that he is coming back. And listen, friend, that he did that for you, for you. That's his invitation to you. But I'm going to ask that if you're here and you don't know Christ, that you not partake 
in the meal that we're about to partake in. So just after our prayer, we'll go to silence. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the guarantee that we have of your return. God, when we think as sinful people about your return, our natural inclination ought to have been fear that the judge of all the earth is coming and that all injustice and all sin and all sinners would meet that justice. But in what Christ did at the cross on our behalf in taking our sins, past, present, and future on his body, in experiencing the absence of the presence of the Father, and in rising from the dead, he gave us new life where we are no longer foes but friends, where we are no longer enemies but family. So as we come to the table, we're reminded of your good and gracious sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, help us not to take it for granted and help us to look forward to that day where once again you partake of the fruit of the vine in our presence. Help us to be hopeful and confident. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.